I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Brooke Masters, our Chief Regulation Correspondent, and Daniel Schaefer, Investment Banking Correspondent. And down the line from Nicosia in Cyprus, we have Josh Chaffin, our EU Correspondent. This week, we'll discuss the €10 billion bailout deal for Cyprus that was struck in the early hours of Monday morning. We'll take a look at the news that investment bankers are still getting paid more than other professionals, but the gap is narrowing. And finally, we'll talk about global banking watchdogs' crackdown on regulatory arbitrage with a plan to charge banks that use credit default swaps to cut their capital requirements. First, though, to Cyprus. Now, on the line I have Josh Chaffin, who has been watching and listening to the events surrounding the Cyprus bailout over the weekend. Just to fill in listeners on where we are with this, it's something of a moving target. Basically, what's been agreed in overnight negotiations over the weekend is that small depositors in Cypriot banks should be free of the penalties that had been proposed in earlier resolutions. There won't be haircuts or taxes or anything on deposits up to 100,000. But beyond that, the hit is going to be all the more severe, yet to be finalised exactly but probably something approaching 40% hit to deposits beyond that level. And of course, two different banks are being wound down. Bank of Cyprus split into a good bank and a bad bank, and the second biggest bank, Likey, being wound down altogether. Josh, you're in Nicosia. You've been witnessing a lot of these talks and a lot of the, uh, the travels firsthand. What is the mood of the people like on the ground? It's actually fairly calm today, and it's a public holiday. I think that there's a sense of exhaustion. People were following this every minute for the last eight or nine days since the first tentative deal was agreed in Brussels and the news first came out that deposits might be raided. I think that people had come to the conclusion a few days ago, they were resigned to the idea that the offshore financial business, which is really the dominant force in the economy here is not going to exist in the same way in the future and that it's just going to be a shell of itself. So there really weren't under any illusions. I think there was a lot of concern last night that perhaps no deal would happen and that there might be, in fact, an exit from the euro and the chaotic bankruptcy. So I think there's some relief that that didn't occur, but I think people have already accepted how grim the future is going to be and that the industry that's been the lifeblood for this island since after the Turkish invasion in 1974 is substantially going away. They're quite uh, realistic about it. You say there's a a sense of of calm resignation. Does that extend to the streets in the sense of people not forming queues outside bank cash points? We haven't seen much of that today. That's calmed down a bit. The banks have actually lowered the amount of cash that you can withdraw on a daily basis, which is another worrying sign. And it's still not clear when the banks are going to reopen. The expectation is that they'll reopen on Tuesday, but that still hasn't been confirmed. And it's also expected that the government will impose capital controls 
the parliament passed emergency legislation on Friday night giving the government the authority to do this. And the idea is that they will have to, to prevent a huge stampede of, of withdrawals. But the actual details still haven't been determined. And of course, you know, the people who would be responsible for this were with the president in Brussels all night in this negotiation. So I think that the amount of time to sort of work out these details and communicate them to the public and try to get things ready for tomorrow, it's still quite a, a messy task. And there's also the issue that thousands of employees from these two biggest banks are now expecting to lose their jobs. And so it's not entirely clear that they're going to show up for work tomorrow to help manage this uh, this process. Well, clearly the waves from this crisis are going to keep rumbling on for some time to come. Thanks very much, Josh, for joining us. Thank you. So, Daniel, we were hearing from the ground what the situation is like, but this crisis goes far broader than just a small island. It's being looked at very closely by investors right across Europe, particular nervousness in some parts of the Eurozone, particularly Spain and Italy, that there could be similar sentiment around nervousness on deposits and nervousness around senior debt and so on. I guess there is also a bit of relief, as there is in the streets of Nicosia, that a resolution has been found. What's your sense of the risks going forward? Well, yes, the short-term market reaction has been a fairly positive one, simply because they dreaded that, as Josh said, that they might not find a deal and Cyprus would have to leave the Eurozone, which obviously would have been catastrophic for the Eurozone. But there are a lot of longer-term worries uh, about this. One thing is that the bankers I've spoken to are saying, you know, that this might again reignite the trend of capital flight out of the periphery to the core of Europe, something which we've seen happening right until Mario Draghi last year said he would do everything it takes to save the Eurozone, and then this trend slowly started to reverse. So this might come back again. That's the first point. The second point is... There are lots of words uh, about this precedent that has been set with respect to bailing in depositors. I suppose there's some comfort to the fact that the so-called guarantees applied to deposits under 100,000 are now going to be intact. That that prospect was raised in the initial bailout idea, but that's gone. But you would argue that the the, the Rubicon had already (laughs) been crossed, the very idea of that being countenanced. Well, yeah, there's two things about it. Firstly, although in the end it hasn't been done and the deposit insurance was intact, the idea was there. So the genie is out of the bottle in a sense. And secondly, the uninsured depositors in Cyprus will take a very big hit. And obviously... There's a question now, what are uninsured depositors with deposits of more than 100,000 euros do in other countries if a bank looks shaky? So so there are a lot of worries about that. But having said that, every banker I've spoken to is saying Cyprus is a very small economy. Obviously, you know, the economic impact of this is really small. And the hope is that people will actually differentiate between what has been done in Cyprus and what would be done in another situation in a bigger country. Well, we will see, I'm sure, as the weeks go on, whether next time there is a risk emerging around Spain or around Italy, whether there's this level of nervousness re-emerges. That will tell the tale, won't it? We should move on to our next topic, which is banker pay. Daniel, you had a big number in the FT on Monday showing the level, really, of investment banker pay being a fraction of what it used to be. Uh, Still, obviously, a far better paid industry than most others. But in a nutshell, the conclusion of of your research was that the multiple, the premium that bankers get over other industries is smaller than it has been for a long time. The main thing that came out of the exclusive research we did really is that 
it's now starting to become a structural shift in that there is not only a cyclical reaction that banks are bringing bonuses down, which is something we've seen right at the start of the financial crisis, and that which then sort of reversed in 2009 and 2010. But now, particularly in 2012, it was the first year where we've actually seen banks cutting pay despite rising underlying profits, which is really points to the fact that there is now a structural change going on, which means that bonuses will be permanently lower in in the sector. And also there's pressure on base salaries as well. And that all taken together means that this sort of pay premium that has built up between banks and other sectors of the economy since the 1980s is now starting to reverse and it's coming down again. And this is the number that PwC ran for us showing that it was yeah. uh, about 5.8 times the average yeah. versus over nine times a few years ago. Yeah, 5.8 times still sounds very high. And I would argue that there is always going to be a premium for investment bankers like lawyers or other highly specialized, uh, highly skilled sectors. Because the average that we're talking about here doesn't represent equivalent industries necessarily. No, it's the really broad private sector average. So it includes really low skilled labor as well. So there is obviously justification for premium there. But the question is just how much it should be. And, And actually, there are academic studies who show that it used to be closer to parity. And since the 1980s, it has exploded with the deregulation in the sector and with the leverage boom that we've seen, particularly since 2000. And some bankers themselves admit that, particularly in the past decade, there has been no discipline at banks in the sense that people just got paid for revenues and nobody looked at the risks that are, were included in the revenues and their costs. Everything was plentiful. Brooke, Daniel mentioned there that this is a period of structural change, not cyclical change. Now, obviously, one of the structural things that has changed in the underlying banking market is regulation, tougher capital requirements, and more than that. How influential has that been and how How much does that support the argument, do you think, that this structural change is here to stay in terms of the pay? The big structural change is that banks are having to hold a lot more capital against the particular activities that generated the really, really big salaries and bonuses. And so they are less profitable. Because those were the riskiest businesses as well. Exactly. They, I mean, they, they were the punt where if you won, you won big. And if you lost the bank and the taxpayers absorbed the losses. And yeah. now that's less true. And it often came home to roost much further down the road as well. So the whole principle of being paid up front has also changed a lot. Absolutely. We've seen this year, actually, for the first time in the UK, especially really meaningful clawbacks, where people who got paid on profits that turned out to be illusory over the long term are not getting their deferred pay. And so I do think this structural change is likely to survive unless the banks find a way around the capital requirements, which is always possible. Absolutely. Well, let's stick with you, Brooke, because our third topic of the day is a story that you wrote on over the weekend, which is another tweak to Basel III, or rather an angle of Basel III reforms, which are being monitored very closely by the regulators, and they've picked up on banks' 
basically trying to cheat. Exactly. What is really interesting is, you know, Basel III is a big package with lots of big, complicated, many moving parts. This is the first time they've gone back into the deal specifically to Adeline to address what they see as absolute cheating. They call it regulatory capital arbitrage. And they warned in December 2011 they did not like this particular kind of deal, which basically is what happens is a bank buys a credit default swap or some other form of credit protection against one of its really risky holdings, shipping loans, third world infrastructure, things that can go bad. And what they do is they immediately can get capital relief because, of course, it's less risky now because somebody else is going to pay the first losses. But they then defer the premiums. And so they don't have to recognize that there's a risk in the premiums if you, say, bought them from AIG and AIG goes bust, and also that you're paying a lot of money for these. And because of the deferred premiums, they are actually really quite high. So are they going to put a stop to this practice altogether or just say that you need to pay the premiums all up front? Neither, actually. They are going to say, actually, it's fine to offload the risk. But in the process of offloading the risk, if you're going to take capital relief up front, you got to also do the present value of the money you're going to pay in the future. And what that does is makes it much less of a bonanza in terms of capital relief. You can get some capital relief, but you don't get much more than perhaps the deal is worth. So it will continue to be done, do you think? Well, it's, economically, uh, it's interesting. Tracy Alloway, our reporter in New York, discovered that Goldman Sachs has been doing these kinds of deals for 10 years, long before they had regulatory capital implications of this magnitude. So my sense is some deals will continue to get done, but it will be done largely for risk management points of view and less for pure capital point of view. And is that bad news for any of the? I mean, there's been lots of little boutiques that have sprung up to kind of advise on this type of stuff, hasn't there? I mean, is there, does this little industry now shut down or what happens? I think this little industry will not be as profitable as it once was. And also, on the other hand, you know, pension funds and asset managers and insurers who've been selling this stuff at really, really, really high premiums are not going to be getting those anymore. Yet another crackdown from regulators. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke, Daniel and Josh for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. We're taking a break for Easter next week, but we'll return the following week. Until then, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.